Would you welcome your sister, our sister, Courtney, to come and preach God's word? like this is so regular that this is like the most regular thing I've ever done on a Sunday um, when in reality my insides are really like I feel like we need to call 911 because I don't know what is happening or what is going on so probably about six months ago I felt the Holy Spirit say to me over and over and over again uh, you are gonna speak soon and I was exactly like, no, uh, no, I am not going to do that. That feels aggressive. And I don't think that that's something I want to do. And so um, I told God, I was like, you know, Pastor Chris talks about like dropping mail in our mailboxes. And I just feel like, God, you may have dropped that piece in the wrong mailbox. Because that um, is not something that I do. And so I'm just going to go ahead and RSVP no to that party because it makes me feel kind of sweaty. God, right? He wasn't here for that. He was like, um, I don't really care. Um, you are just going to need to get some extra strength deodorant, girlfriend, because what I said still stands. You are going to speak soon. And so when Pastor Chris texted us a couple of weeks ago asking if one of us would speak, um, I immediately broke out into a cold sweat and also started dying laughing because don't you just know? That when God tells you you're going to do something, that you better just buckle up because you are going to do it. And so I'm just thankful this morning to serve a God who does not operate out of a box. He doesn't need us to be anything other than what we already are to accomplish what he is already going to accomplish. Amen? Amen. All right, so probably about five years ago, God very clearly told Dustin and I that it was time to start our family. And if that sounds like hokey and weird, I'm really sorry about it. I can't um, help you understand, but it is what God said. He said it was time. And I need you to know that we were not ready. Um, we did not want kids yet. We were not really interested in growing our family at this exact moment in time. But the Holy Spirit said it was time. It was time to start a family. It was time to adopt a child. It was time to do it now, and we could not shake it. And so we found ourselves standing in the middle of a fork in the road. Choose obedience or choose safety. Choose obedience or choose comfort. Choose what God wanted for us or choose what we wanted for us. And so we ended up choosing obedience, and it was 30 kinds of terrifying and I just, like, I just want you to know that we didn't choose obedience because we are super holy, because we're super not. Um, fun fact, sometimes I cuss, so there's that. <laughs> but we did obedience and the Lord moved and opened doors and provided and showed up in mighty ways. It was so evident that this story had the hand of God on it. And then one day 
I found myself boarding an airplane out of Nashville headed to Uganda to go and be with the little boy who would become my son. We were almost done. This was the last step. I would board a plane out of Uganda in a few months with that little boy beside me. It was how it all worked. It felt exciting, like our act of obedience was about to have a happy ending. It had all been worth it. And I remember pulling up to his orphanage and being ushered back into an office where I waited. I was nervous and excited and about to become a mom. It all felt so weird and so holy. And the next thing I knew, a bundle of four-year-old energy bound through the door and jumped up into my lap and immediately started talking a mile a minute in a language I couldn't understand. And that was it. He was it. It was Juco. And for as long as I live, I will never forget standing in my house in Uganda and hearing the words through the other end of the phone say, I am so sorry, Courtney. This has never happened to us before. We can't ethically continue with his adoption. And just like that, it was over. The details of all that will always remain private, but after all of the work and investigations that have been done to prevent something like this, it still happened. There was nothing we could do. Ethics matter. We knew we had to walk away. And so I packed my bags. I said one of the worst goodbyes of my lifetime. And I flew home sans little boy. It was devastating. It was right to walk away, and it was also devastating. And for the first time in my life, I felt like Jesus had set my life on fire. And it wasn't in like the cute, like after church camp, kind of, I am so on fire for Jesus, kind of way. <laughs> no, no, it was more like, I don't know, Jesus had invited us to come outside. Like he had even opened the door for us like a true gentleman. And then as we stood outside excited and waiting and expectant for whatever he had invited us outside to do, he picks up a can of gasoline. He hoses us down real good. He takes this match, lights it, throws it at us, and just walks away with peace signs in the air as we catch on fire. It was that kind of on fire. It was aggressive. It wasn't cute. And honestly, it felt a little rude. I came home and I had to do the work of grieving. If you've ever lost something or mourned or grieved, you probably know what I'm talking about. I couldn't shower. I couldn't get up off my couch. I couldn't eat anything. My bags remained packed for weeks because I was convinced that this was all a mistake and that someone was going to call and tell me to come back. And when that didn't happen, I was forced to open up the door to his room and go in it. I had to box up books and toys and games that had all been bought for him. I opened up the dresser and the closet and I took out all of his clothes and folded them up by size and packed them up. I took the little boy's sheets off of his bed and I traded them for another color. I turned the house that had been ready for a little boy back into a house just ready for guests. I learned that there is a unique kind of pain that comes from preparing your heart and your home for a child who will never come. And this pain wasn't like any other kind of pain I had ever experienced before. It throbbed and it wouldn't go away and there was no closure and it was everywhere and I couldn't get away from it and there were times I felt like I couldn't breathe. I had nightmares for months. And I didn't know what else to do besides suit up and wrestle with God. 
He was the reason we were in this mess after all. And so I screamed at him and cussed at him and ugly snot cried at him. I was so mad. It all felt so mean. I didn't understand why he would so clearly tell us to do something. Make a way and then blow it all up in our faces. I felt hurt. I felt like we had been tricked. I told God that I didn't know if I wanted to believe in a God who did stuff like this. And I meant every word. I begged him to change the story. I knew he could do it with a snap of his finger. And it felt so cruel when he chose not to. I remember when I finally found a voice for all of my anger and it disgusted me. I'm angry because this isn't fair. I'm angry because this doesn't make any sense. I'm angry because this doesn't seem just. I'm angry because this right here is not what I signed up for. I'm angry because we obeyed and now we're hurt. I'm angry because I feel like we deserved a good ending to our yes to Jesus. I discovered that I had never really believed in the true gospel of Jesus Christ that reeks of obedience and suffering, but rather this weird gospel of entitlement. This made-up gospel that says, I stepped out in faith. I said yes, I obeyed. It was scary and hard to do that. Therefore, I deserve a good ending to our yes to Jesus. I had never had to stare down the true cost of obedience until now, and it was sobering. I was learning from Juco that obedience is costly in more ways than one. That sometimes, sometimes God will tell you to do something clear as day. And the result of your obedience will be to stand in a fire and proclaim that he is good. And then out of nowhere, you can throw that second picture up. I missed the first one. You can throw that second one up there. Maybe. This is my first day, so I'm just going to wait. Nope, the next. That was Juco. He's my little buddy. You can throw that next one up. Do y'all know who that is? Can you just tell? Doesn't he look so disgruntled? He's like, why exactly am I sitting in a green chair and a dress? (laughs) But out of nowhere, this exact picture hit my inbox one morning, and I went to the bathroom and I threw up. I sobbed so audibly, it almost hurts to think about now. I was asking us to do, but I said no. I said no anyways. I didn't care if it was what God wanted for us. I felt okay in that moment choosing disobedience in the name of safety. And so I said no. No. I can't do it again. I don't want to do it again. I don't have to do it again. What if the same thing happens all over again? I don't know if I believe in God enough to do it again. And so I said no. And I sat right there in my no for a really long time. And for a while it felt good. I mean, disobedience doesn't always feel wrong in the moment, right? I thought, I can control this situation. I will be in charge of the outcome this time. And the outcome will be that we're not going to get hurt again because we aren't going to do it. And so I landed in this place where I had to choose. Do I believe who God says he is or do I not? Do I believe that he is able and that he also doesn't have to? 
Do I believe that the act of obedience far outweighs the cost of obedience? Am I willing to risk pain and heartache and suffering because obedience is greater? Because sometimes, sometimes obedience looks like having to stand in a furnace as everything goes up in flames around you. And sometimes obedience looks like Gerd yet son. But obedience is right, no matter the outcome. And so as we look this morning at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I find myself just really obsessed with their commitment to God. They were fully convinced of who God said he was. I love their unwavering, bold, in-your-face commitment to obedience at all costs. And so if y'all will turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I just want to walk through part of the text and then talk through some stuff. Is that all right with you guys? If it's not, I'm doing it anyways. So So our story is set in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And just a little context to this story. About 600 years before Christ was born, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he besieged Jerusalem, took captive citizens of Israel, and then dispersed them. And so among the Israelites who ended up being sent to Babylon were four men from the tribe of Judah, Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we learn in earlier chapters of Daniel that these four Hebrew men excelled in wisdom and knowledge, and they had found favor with the king, who put them into service among his most trusted counselors. And then in chapter 2, the king starts to have bad dreams, and he needs someone to interpret them, and Daniel ends up being the person who does it. And the dream that Daniel interprets is one about a statue. And this statue represents King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the three kingdoms that will follow, the last one being the kingdom of God who will replace all of those. All right? And so out of gratitude, the king appoints Daniel and makes him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And he places him in charge of all of his wise men. And then Daniel, because he's a good friend, he requests that the king also promote his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he does. He appoints them and makes them administrators under Daniel. And so I feel like all this is important because it helps me at least understand our story a little more, a little more. Like, first of all, it tells us why these men are even in Babylon in the first place. They're not Babylonians. And then it gives us a better understanding of this whole statue thing. Like, what, what's the deal? And then it also, lastly, tells us who these people are. These men are important. They're respected. They're public figures. They represent and work for the king. They are not Babylonians. They had found favor with the king, but the king had still kind of taken a chance with these Hebrew guys, right? And so then we move into chapter 3, and the first thing we see is that King Nebuchadnezzar has built this image of gold. And there is a distinct correlation between the image that he builds and the image that he saw. And I think I read where there was like, I think 20 years in between the dream and the construction of this thing. And I would like to think that during that time, that Nebuchadnezzar had had like a minute to process what Daniel um, said. And he most likely didn't really appreciate it, right? Like, who says my empire is going to end? Who says there will be a king after me? Who says it has to go down like that? Who says I am the one going to be overthrown? What can I do to change 
that outcome. And so he builds this image. And so this image represents his desire for his reign, his kingdom, and authority to never end. This is his attempt to be in perpetual power to rule forever. And so all of these things have happened, and Nebuchadnezzar has erected this image, and he has this great plan, right? He's going to have like a revealing party of sorts, where everyone who is important is going to gather in the town square where the image is. He's going to dedicate it and reveal his amazing plan to stay in power forever. I'm sure there was some like pomp and circumstance to this thing. It was important. It was all planned out. This was a big deal. And so all of these people come together. And we start reading in verse 4. And I'm going to read out the NIV. Sorry about it. Um, the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. No big deal, right? That's not scary at all. Like, I just wonder, were these people prepared for something like this? Did they know this was coming? Did Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know, like tweet it out earlier in the day, so they showed up expecting this, or was this straight up out of left field? And for the Babylonians, honestly, this probably was not that big of a deal. They worshiped tons and tons of gods, and so really this was them just adding one more to their list. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do you think it was like to show up, hear this, and know in your gut what you had to do. And then it happens, right? There's no lag time. It's not like they announce this and then say, uh, so tomorrow at noon, we're going we're gonna to start this when it's all going to go down. So go home, get a good night's rest, and then tomorrow when you hear the music, we're going to start the thing. No, it happens, right? Then the herald hollers the plan, the music plays, the people fall down and worship the image of gold the king has erected. Hats off to Nebuchadnezzar. It worked. I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting somewhere on his throne, observing all of this going down, feeling pretty proud of himself. But then there's some scuffle. Something's not right. Something is about to happen, and we see some men telling the king that there are some men who you appointed who are not doing what they're supposed to do, and here are their names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't serve your gods or worship the image you set up. They pay no attention to you. And Nebuchadnezzar's mad. And it makes sense. This is embarrassing. These are his people, and his people are misbehaving in public in front of everyone. This poses a threat to him. What if other people do the same thing? He appointed each one of them to serve under him. And so it only makes sense that his people agree with his policies and fall in line with what he says to do. And so he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see in verse 14, him say, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And so after he questions them, we see that he gives them one more chance. And for some reason, I think this is funny. I don't know. It's like he gives them the benefit of the doubt here. And then he lets them try one more time. 
but they don't take it. They don't want the second chance. They don't need it. And so when Nebuchadnezzar poses the question, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He's about to find out, right? It's just like, oh, just the same God that delivered his people out of Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. Just that God, right? Just like Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn that the God of Israel is a God who is to be heard and obeyed. That the God of Israel is the one true God who is able to deliver and save and rescue his people. And then we get to my favorite part. We're going to start in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are responding to what Nebuchadnezzar has just said. And they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed their God was their deliverer. They believed their God was the great rescuer. They believed God was able to save them from the fiery furnace. And while they believed that, they did not assume that just because he was capable that he would do it. They believed he could if he chose to do so because he is sovereign, but he most certainly didn't have to. But they were so committed to obedience, they were willing to risk being thrown into a fire. It was not negotiable. They would not be bowing down. And Nebuchadnezzar rages with anger over this. He orders the fire to be turned up seven times hotter, and the strongest soldiers are ordered to tie them up and throw them in. But the fire is so hot. The fire is so hot that the soldiers end up dying right there. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into the fire. Like, could it get any worse here? And then we know the rest of the story. We see the king. He looks into the fire and he sees the three men, not only not dead, but unbound and walking around. And there's a fourth person in there who has a godlike appearance. And he calls for them to come out. He examines them and they're not harmed. Their clothes are not burned and they don't smell like smoke. They had been fully delivered. And so there are a few things I want to draw out of the text and kind of bring to our attention. And the first is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not believe that faithfulness to God guaranteed freedom from suffering. How often do we pray for God to keep us from suffering rather than praying for him to keep us through suffering? We would rather avoid pain and suffering at all costs. We don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. We don't like pain. We're afraid of it. We're not good at it. No one wants an invitation to suffer. No, thank you. The idea of taking a risk, the idea of obedience is so much sexier than actually taking the risk, than actually obeying. But discomfort is a teacher and we should welcome it. Jesus said we would suffer. Not that we might, but that we would. We should expect it. When we signed on to follow Christ, we signed on to suffer. It's purposeful, it's powerful, and it's a guarantee. The next is that obedience is costly. 
And I've told this story before, but one day our oldest son, Wyatt, was just like not having it. He would not listen. He would not obey. And so I like pulled him aside and I was like, dude, what is up today? Like, what is going on? And his little three-year-old self looked back and he was like, you know, mom, I know I'm supposed to obey, but obeying is just harder than it looks. (laughs) And that's the truth though, right? Obeying is harder than it looks. Obedience requires sacrifice. Obedience is not easy. It requires that we die to our flesh, our emotions, our desires. It will cost us something. God did not have to rescue them from the furnace. They could have died that day as an act of obedience to God. And that would have been the end. And that would have been enough. But they were more committed to the act of obedience than the result of obedience. The next is that God didn't change their circumstance when things got hard, when things got serious, right? He didn't make it less scary to have to stand up against a law that conflicted God's word. He didn't take the consequence of disobeying the law of the land away. He didn't make the consequence something different or less severe. He didn't make the fire less hot. He did the opposite. He didn't change one thing about their situation, but he still expected obedience from them. The next was that God's power was most dramatically demonstrated in the fire. There would not have been a miracle performed that day had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not gotten in the fire. This story would be all kinds of different, right? If, I don't know, they had been too scared and they bowed down anyways. Or I don't know, what if they had just like ran away? I feel like that's something I would do, just hightailed it out of there. Or what if they had like hidden behind people who were bowing down? Or like pretended to bow down so that they didn't get caught? Like they most definitely bore witness to their faith outside of the fire by refusing to bow down. But it was in the fire where the watching world took note. It was in the fire where the miracle happened, but they had to get in the fire first. The next is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feared God more than they feared man. Nebuchadnezzar's order to worship this new God was on the basis of fear. He thought he could scare people into worshiping him. And so the people of Babylon, they've got this gold statue, a fiery furnace, and a choice in front of them. Everyone knew they had to choose. It was the image or the furnace. It was bow down or burn. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feared the wrath of God more than they feared the king. They knew the fires of hell would be far more devastating than the fire in that furnace. They were fully convinced of the promises of God and in their obedience to him. The next is that fire always purifies And I was reading about how fire purifies metals and stuff. And purification comes from being put into the hottest part of the fire. The harshest part. The blue part of the fire. And you put it there and you keep it there. You don't put it in, take it out. Put it in, take it out, blow it off, make sure it's comfy. Right? No. No, you put that thing in the fire and you leave it there. Until that thing that is being purified loses all resemblance to what it once looked like. 
And so then once the thing has been purified, the goldsmith can take it out and shape it and make it into whatever shape he wants to form. And God is like the goldsmith, right? He sticks us into the fire of trials and tribulations and suffering so he can melt us down, get rid of the stuff we don't need and mold us into the shape he wants us to become. And the last point is that they believed in a God who was able to save them and also didn't have to. A faith that is able to say he is able, and even if he doesn't, is firmly rooted in the character of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were convinced that God was who he said he was. He was able. He was good. He was faithful. He was the rescuer. He was sovereign. He also didn't have to do one thing. To have this kind of faith, we must know who God is. We must know his character. We must proclaim who he is in the light so we can proclaim who he is in the dark. We serve a God who is able. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. What powerful words. What a powerful image. God is able to rescue me from cancer. And even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to restore my marriage. And even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to heal my child. And even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to take this illness or disease away. And even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to provide a new job for me, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to heal a barren womb and give children to those who long for them, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to part red seas and allow us to walk right through them, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to bring a spouse to me, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to fulfill a dream he laid on my heart, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to redeem my relationship with my child, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. God is able to rise up beauty from ashes and turn hatred into love and mourning into dancing and grief into joy, and even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. I will not bow down. I will not bow down because I am fully convinced of the promises of God. I will not bow down because I am not afraid to stand in the fire. I will not bow down because being comfortable is not the heart of God. I will not bow down because I fear God more than I fear man. And so I will obey God over obeying man. I will not bow down because I am not afraid to live in the tension of believing in a God who is able and a God who doesn't have to. I will not bow down. And so I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had to stand in a fire before. I don't know if the Lord has ever required obedience from you and it has looked like a furnace. I don't know if life has ever handed you a really crappy hand of cards that quite frankly really sucked. I don't know. But I do know that the miracle was found in the fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't found in avoiding it, or putting it out, or running away from it, or aborting the mission altogether. No, it was found by squaring up, weighing the cost of obedience, 
and being obedient anyways. It was found by facing it head on with an unwavering confidence in the God they served. It was found by standing in the flames and not being burned. It was found in proclaiming God's goodness in spite of death. So I don't know where you are today, but I do know that you can obey God scared. And anyone who tells you otherwise has never had to do it. That sometimes, sometimes obedience will never not be scary, and so you will just have to do it afraid. That God doesn't necessarily say, don't be afraid of fire. Fire is still fire, but he asks us to be willing and not afraid to stand in it with him. God is able, and God doesn't have to. He is both, and he is good. Because God doesn't change just because our circumstances did. God doesn't require any less of us just because things get scary or uncomfortable. God hasn't forgotten who he is or become something different simply because it got hot in here. No, he is who he says he is always in all circumstances, in all environments, in all levels of heat. And so I don't know where you land today. Maybe you're the one staring down a fire, or maybe you've just come out of one. Or maybe you're looking at a choice that will result in fire, or maybe God's asking you to do something scary. Or maybe you're the one standing in the actual flames. I don't know. But no matter where you are, do not give up. Do not walk away. Do not fear the cost of obedience. Do not be afraid of the heat. Do not forget who God says he is. Do not bow down. Do not forget in the heat of darkness what God has promised you in the light. Amen.